Good morning, church. And all you moms out there, happy Mother's Day to you. And uh, as uh, just a small token of our recognition and honor of moms on your way out, uh, please, uh, we want to give you a single flower and and, uh, some words of blessing. And so take that on your way out um, this morning. During the early morning hours of January 6, 2013, county deputies were called to a country store in Cassett, South Carolina to investigate a burglary. The deputies determined that someone had broken into the store and stolen beer and cigarettes and snack foods and energy drinks. The burglar only stole $160 worth of goods but caused about $2,500 in damages in the process. The store manager, Howard Buckholt, said he knocked out our front door, he knocked out the beer cooler and stole beer and cigarettes and Slim Jims, and in his haste, he punctured two or three bags of Cheetos. Buckholt said Cheetos were all over the place, all over the parking lot. They were at the place uh, where he parked his car. And it proved to be the burglar's undoing. Because the police followed the trail of cheesy dust right to the house where the burglar was staying with a friend. As investigators approached the front door of the home, they observed more fresh Cheetos on the front porch. Buckholtz added he was very easy to catch. It was a very quick deal. Now, it was so ridiculous, I looked into it to see the credibility of this story. And it truly did happen. But I also discovered another, another incident um, where some, another burglar was caught orange-handed. This happened just two months ago uh, in March of this year um, that this woman broke into a home and she brought her own, apparently brought her own bag of Cheetos and left the bag behind with a bottle of water and then she was later found with the incriminating orange snack food residue still stuck in her teeth. Don't bring Cheetos on the job. Wait, don't even do that. One police officer said this, Sharon Carr was arrested on first-degree burglary charge after allegedly committing the dangerously cheesy act Friday at a home in Tulsa. Another police officer wrote on Facebook, this is a good reminder that Cheeto dust can be pretty hard to get rid of. So to paraphrase the Bible verse in Numbers 32, 23 that says, be sure your sin will find you out, we could say, be sure your Cheetos will find you out. I mean, it's a very loose translation. You know, our sin might not be revealed that quickly, but our sin and our actions often leave a trail. It's been said to err is human, But someone else has noted to err is human and to cover it up is too. It's human nature to run and blame and hide when we have sin, but there's a better way. You see, one of the major differences between a a Christian and an unbeliever is, is, is not that Christians don't sin and unbelievers do sin, but it's that Christians see their sin for what it is and their need for His mercy and grace. It's been said this way, what distinguishes us, meaning the people of God, from the world is not that we're less wicked, 
but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and to confess our sins. You see, what makes the church the church is that we confess sin. We own sin. We approach God in humility asking for him to have mercy on us. But I do wonder, have we lost the holy habit of confession? Is confession of sin uh, limited to that moment in time when we uh, turn to God for salvation? Well, my hope is that by the end of our time this morning, we will have a better understanding and appreciation of confession and, uh, and see it as an integral aspect of our spiritual journey, both individually and collectively. All right, this morning... We come to one of the longest prayers recorded for us in Scripture. And as we'll see, the bulk of the prayer is uh, a confession. Thirteen of sixteen verses are weighted toward confession. We're going to work through thirteen verses of this prayer before we come to a petition, a request from the man Daniel. All right, so look with me, if you're not there, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, as I always do, I encourage you to, to go to the Scriptures and follow along. It's always better that way. Daniel chapter 9. Now, Bible students and prophecy teachers have an interest in Daniel chapter 9. Particularly the last four verses of the chapter that speak of 77s. 77s. What is meant, that's the literal rendering, 77s, but what is meant by that phrase 77s? Is that referring to days or years? Is it, and how many days or years? And, and, and what's the significance of the seven sevens and the 62 sevens and what seems to be one seven left and that there's a middle of that seven? Did, did you get all that? I didn't think so. Well, you're going to have to tune in next Sunday as I tackle the tricky passage of the 77s. I'm taking two weeks on chapter 9 so we can look at what I believe often gets slighted in our fascination with end time issues. I want us to look at this magnificent prayer that speaks to the time we're living in now. So I hope you're following along with me, Daniel chapter 9. And before we dig into the particulars of this prayer, I want to first see what is it that prompted this prayer. What prompted this prayer, that's my first heading this morning, prompted this prayer. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. Daniel, by the way, is still speaking in the first person as he has done since chapter 7. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. Now, chronologically, the timing of this here is in this prayer is before chapters 7 and 8. Likely around the time of uh, chapter 6 in Daniel and the lion's den. Probably after that, but we don't really know for sure. But, but likely in that same time frame. So, that means this is after Babylon has fallen and the second kingdom, the Medo-Persian Empire, now rules over the people of God who are still in captivity, but what is still called Babylonian kingdom. 
There's a transition here. And it's this time of, of, of transition as Daniel watches one king go and another king enter. And Daniel might have wondered that since the superpower of Babylon has been destroyed and taken over by this new empire, what's next for the people of God? Well, Daniel's mind is then open to some pertinent scriptures that speak to that. Look at verse 2. Daniel 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, it's interesting to note here that Daniel uh, viewed the book of Jeremiah as the scriptures, and that the scriptures were the very words of God. You see, you disobey or obey the Bible then you disobey or obey God. That's just how that works. Now, I also find it interesting that Daniel likely had read these words of Jeremiah several times before now, but it's in this moment that the significance of the words in Jeremiah hit him. It was on one particular moment that he understood what Jeremiah was now saying. I mean, how many times have you seen that happen in your life? I mean, something that you've read many times before, and yet some specific moment, God uses it to speak into your life, into your situation, bring encouragement to you, and the light bulb kind of sort of goes on, and you go, wow, I've read that a hundred times, but there it is. I see it now. I get it. That's what happens to Daniel. Now, this is why spending time in the Word of God is so critical to your growth. Don't think for a moment, church, that a 30 to 35-minute sermon once a week on Sunday morning is all the feeding you need. No. No, you need to be self-feeding. You need to read this for yourself. You need to be a student of God's Word. Daniel is a student of the Scriptures. He's reading in the book. He's reading in the scroll of Jeremiah. And he comes to what I think, Jeremiah chapter 25. There weren't chapters in his day. But chapter 25, verses 11 through 13. Jot it down. Look at it later. I'm going to throw it up on the screen so you can see it. This is what I think he was reading. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 13. This whole country country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will then punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make that desolate forever. Daniel's reading this and it dawns on him what this all means. Jeremiah said the Jews would be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Now, for sake of argument, let's say that Daniel arrived when he was 15 years old. Because somewhere between 14 and 19. Let's just say he arrived in Babylon in captivity when he was 15 years old. Now he's close to 80. That's roughly 65 years. This, this wasn't rocket science. He's going, wait a minute. We're getting close to the end here. His heart must have been pounding. 
The time of captivity is nearly over. You see, since God was responsible for the beginning of the exile, he was responsible for the ending of the exile. So Daniel sees that time's almost over. We're going to be out of captivity here. This is, this is awesome. What's about to happen? What does Daniel do? Verse 3 answers that. You want to follow along. He says, so I found myself a rocking chair. I folded my hands on my lap and I rocked back and forth, back and forth until this all came to an end. That's not what it says. Daniel, seeing the finish line, doesn't pull back and coast. Might Daniel have said, there's really no need to pray here. I'm just going to wait this thing out. His trust in the sovereign God doesn't lead to apathy. He does the exact opposite for Daniel. It's what prompts him to pray. Now, I believe this is very instructive for us today. The point of prophecy is that it ought to drive us to our knees. We know, therefore we pray. We know, therefore we pray. So I turned to the Lord, he says in verse 3. So I turned to the Lord. Literally it says, I set my face. It's the thought of, of focus. Parents, you've likely said to your kids, look at me. <laughs> I'm talking to you. Focus. Give me your attention. And you might even put your hands on their face and, and turn them towards you. Now, you, don't, you, you do that when they're younger. Don't do that when they're teenagers. They don't appreciate that very much. But you're saying, look at me. I'm talking. Do you get this? That's what Daniel's doing. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on the Lord. He's not talking to God while he's on his laptop or while he's looking down at his phone. He sets his face to the Lord. God has his full attention. He's concentrating and talking with the Lord. He's fixed on God. And so he pleads with God in prayer. Our next heading this morning, pleads with God in prayer. Rest of verse 3. I pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. You see, for Daniel, this was no time to eat. This was no time to, to walk around in purple robes of his high position. This was no time to demand rights and fight for privileges. It was time to fall on one's face before God. Daniel approaches God in all humility and he prays this magnificent prayer. And we're eavesdropping on the prayer life of a man who formed the habit of prayer. I want to remind you what I said back in chapter 6 of Daniel's prayer life. In Daniel chapter 6 and, and verse 10, it says, Three times a day he, Daniel, got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. It was a pattern of his life. Verse 13 of Daniel 6. Then they, the accusers, said to the king, Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or, or to the decree you're putting in writing. He still, he still prays three times a day. Still. You see, prayer was at the very heart of Daniel's life. We have the awesome privilege of listening in on someone else's prayer here in Daniel chapter 9. And he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. And it's quite a confession. 
I've already said. What's extraordinary about this prayer is the amount of time he gives to confession. A confession that is precise, a a, a confession that is God-centered. It's not just about him and how miserable he is. No, it's about God. He says in his prayer, verse 4, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. Now, I just need to stop you for a minute. What's, What's with this covenant of love? Well, there are two kinds of covenants in the Bible. There are uh, unconditional covenants, and there are conditional covenants. Unconditional covenants would be uh, like uh, the promise given to Abraham that through him would come a great nation, a nation that would be a blessing to all other nations, ultimately by bringing Jesus into the world to meet our greatest need of, of salvation. There are no conditions on that covenant. God would see that it happened. There was the unconditional covenant promise given to David that through his line would come the promised Messiah, this Jesus who would eventually reign as king. That because of God's covenant, unconditional covenant with David, there would be a remnant of Israel preserved throughout all history and to the end of time as we know it. That those are unconditional covenants and there's other ones, of course. But here... We have the conditional covenant, covenant of love, I believe is the covenant of Moses that was dependent upon the people's obedience. That's the nature of covenant love. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You do what I say and we're going to get along just fine. Things are going to go well for you. If you don't do what I tell you, you're going to be in all kinds of mess. And the people of God entered into this covenant of love with God in which they promised they would obey him. But covenant of love is not just saying I love you, it's do what God says. Jesus said the same thing to his followers and to us, remember? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. See, relationships always go better when we keep our commitment. That's true in our marriage covenant and, and other covenants. We That's true in our relationship with God. It's not just about oh, love, love, love. Alistair Begg put it succinctly. He said, love without obedience is sentimentality. Well, the people of God broke covenant with God. And that's where the rest of this prayer goes. Verse 5, Daniel prays, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Five different ways. In one verse, he says the same thing. Sinned, done wrong, been been wicked, uh, rebelled, turned away. Oh, we continue. He's not done. Verse 6. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. Verse 7. Lord, you're righteous, but this day we're covered with shame. And that phrase, covered with shame, literally, is, it could be translated confusion of face, a distortion of face that comes to one in shame. Verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame. There it is again. Because we have sinned against you. Still not done. Verse 9, the Lord our God's merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God, he says in verse 10. 
Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. All right already, we get it, Daniel. The people sinned. Do you have to keep carrying on? He sums it all up. He's not, he's still, verse 15, we have sinned and we have done wrong. Does he have to keep saying it and saying it and saying it? Does he really, I mean, come on. Does he really have to get all that worked up over sin? Stories told of a man who went to his pastor to confess how for years he had been stealing building supplies from the lumber yard he had been working at and he was starting to feel badly about it. Well, what'd you take, the pastor asked. Well, enough lumber to build my house, enough lumber to build my son's house, and oh yeah, enough lumber to build our cottage at the lake. Wow, the pastor replied, that's a lot of lumber. That's a lot of stealing. This is very serious. The pastor continued, you, you really need to come to grips with what you've done. I'd suggest that you go off by yourself and you do more reflecting on this. I mean, have you ever done a retreat, the pastor asked. Have you, have you ever done a retreat? The man paused and replied, no, I haven't, but if you get me the plans, I can get the lumber. <laughs> I don't think he still gets it. I don't think he's really sorry. I don't think sometimes we get the seriousness of what we have done. We often treat confession, as someone put it, like wiping our feet on the welcome mat of our home. We wipe our feet and just move on. I don't want to spend too much time here. I did it. Let's move on. Let's not keep talking. Let's not dwell on it. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we're to walk around berating ourselves for all our sins and failures. That's not the point. You see, the whole nature of confession is that you recognize the magnitude of your sin so you can appreciate the enormity of God's mercy. And what distinguishes the people of God from the world is that we understand our need for mercy. We saw it back in verse 9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even, forgiving even though we've rebelled against him. Merciful and forgiving emphasize the multiple and extensive boundaries of God's great grace and mercy. And we need to cry out, Lord, have mercy. Remember the scene in, in the New Testament, Luke 18? There were two men who approached God. Remember? The one was a, the one was a Pharisee, right? He prayed about himself. He offered this mini resume to God. I'm not like this person. I don't do this. Good thing I don't do any of that stuff. I'm pretty good. He's, he was self-righteous. He, he maximized self, minimized God. And he missed out on God's grace and mercy because he was stuck on himself. That's one person. Then you have the tax collector, Luke 18. His heart hungered for grace. He cried out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, the sinner. Like the worst sinner, have mercy on me. We're to come to God with a tax collector's heart. Lord, have mercy. Because in God's workshop, the sign reads, I can't fix it until it's broken. 
Alan Golding speaks of a time when he and his wife were missionaries in the Philippines. He says that we vacationed in Baguio City in the mountains of northern Luzon. And while there, we visited the St. Louis Silver School, which was where silversmiths are trained. We admired exquisite workmanship in the workshop and gift shop, and we even took home a souvenir, he says, a pure uh, silver money clip embellished with a distinctive design. And he said, I carried that clip, money clip for many years, but one day it finally broke as I slipped a few bills into it. And I then took the two pieces of the money clip back to the silver school and, and Baggio. One workman asked if he could help me and I explained my predicament and I laid the pieces into his outstretched hand. Well, after examining the pieces for a minute or so, he, he looked up at me and he said, you know, I designed this clip. I was the one, only one, to make this design. I made all of these that were ever made. And so I asked him, but can, can, can you fix it? He said, I designed it. I made it. Of course I can fix it. It isn't until we're broken that we then take the pieces to the one who has made us and redeemed us and invite him to put us back together again. That's confession. Max Lucado speaks of confession this way. He says, confession does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks, pulling up the stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. Will you invite God to walk the acreage of your heart? Has it been a while? And what might he find there when he does? That rock of greed that you can't budge? That stump of guilt that's, that, that, that's just stunting your growth? The root of bitterness that's strangling signs of life in you. What might, what might he find? Might he find, and I hope not, might he find some dry soil, too crusty for seed. So, so the seed of truth, as it goes out each week and other times as you go into it yourself, it kind of just bounces off the hardness of your heart. It doesn't penetrate at all. See, the seed of God's word grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. That's confession. And we could talk about repentance, but that's not necessarily where I'm going this morning, though that's a part of this. But, but I ask you, what do you need to confess so that the seed of God's word can penetrate into your life and not just bounce off? Well, in verse 17, Daniel finally gets to his petition. And he says... Verse 17, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor. Have mercy on your desolate sanctuary. And then he packs a lot with the last two verses. A lot's in. He packs a lot in here. I'm not, I just don't have time to go into all this. You can read it and meditate on it yourself. But in essence, he says, give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, hear and act and, and do not delay. 
Now I want to go back to the end of verse 18 just for a moment. If you have your Bibles open, look at this. He says, we do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. What a summary statement. That's the crux of it all right there. What distinguishes the people of God from the world is that we understand our need of mercy. All right, let me give you some principles from from this prayer. Some principles from this prayer. I'm going to leave you with three rather briefly. First principle is when we confess our sins to God, it helps to be specific. When we confess our sins to God, it helps to be specific. You know, this confession that just says, you know, I'm not as spiritual as I ought to be. I know I'm not a good husband. I know, I know, I'm not, I'm not, not really doing this very well, God. No, no, that's not a, really a confession. And it isn't very helpful. You've heard me say it before. If you can't name it, you can't change it. Name it. The prayer by Daniel here is a great pattern for us. We come to God and say, I have sinned. I've missed the mark. I have acted wickedly. I have rebelled. I've done my own thing, my self-interest, my independent spirit. I have rebelled against you. I have not listened to what your word says because your word says this is how I'm supposed to treat my spouse. And I haven't listened to it. I've ignored your truth. Be specific about your sin. Be specific about your sin. Second principle is when we confess our sins to God, we're acknowledging God's righteousness. Confess our sins to God, we're acknowledging God's righteousness. I haven't spent a lot of time on this. It's a sermon in itself here. But we see in this prayer, Daniel saying, uh, God is right in bringing punishment upon his people. That is a right response to their disobedience. That's the gospel. God is righteous because of sin we deserve eternal separation from Him, a holy God. That is what we deserve. We like to say a lot, I don't deserve that. This is what I deserve. With God, I don't think we want to say, give us what we deserve. I'm guessing. Because God does not give us what we deserve. It's on account of His mercy we're not consumed. So we cry out, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy for, for we've sinned against you. Let's acknowledge both individually and as a church how much we are in need of His mercy. You see, for God to do His work in this place, in this church, for God to do His work at EBC, it has very little to do with putting forward the best ministries. I'm not saying those aren't important, but it has very little to do with that at the end of the day. It has very little to do with increasing our numbers on Sunday morning. It has everything to do with acknowledging our need of his grace and mercy in order to glorify his name. That's the work that God needs to do in our lives, church. Beginning with your pastor. Right down through the elders. To everyone sitting here this morning and watching on live stream. And the playing playing field is level in that regard. It really is. We are all in need of his mercy. A lady was walking through the park. She stopped to have her picture taken by a professional photographer. He then handed her the picture he had taken, and she looked at the picture, and she was horrified. 
And she cried, this is not right. This is not right. You have done me no justice. The photographer looked at the picture, looked at her and said, Miss, you don't need justice. What you need is mercy. Now, I know that's not very kind and not very tactful, but he said a mouthful. See, when it comes to our stuff, it isn't justice we're after, right? But mercy. Justice is for everybody else. I want mercy. Not saying wanting justice is wrong. It's not the focus this morning. But it's the same everybody else needs too, especially in the family of God. Let's be merciful, not self-righteous. All right, I got to give you the third point here. We're to view our sin in the bigger context of the family of God. Do you notice the pronouns Daniel used here in his prayer? Instead of using the pronoun they, he used the pronoun we. Can we really pray, Lord, straighten out your church without adding, Lord, straighten out me in the process? As we speak of the condition of the church today, let's consider our part, that we're part of the problem. Let's not miss the solidarity in this prayer. This is, this is somewhat difficult for the Western mind to really grasp. For in us, in, you know, in this United States, and us as New Englanders, it's about my faith. It's about what I do. It's about what you do. It's none of your business what I do. It's personal to me. You can't back that up biblically. You can't. For Daniel, the failures of Israel are his failures. The people's sin is his sin. And I ask myself, do I view my sin that way? How mindful am I that my actions affect this church? Do you think I don't want to do anything in my life that would in some way affect others negatively at EBC? When's the last time you prayed this prayer? Lord, whatever you do and however you answer my prayer, may it benefit the church. That's radical. But really, it should be. I don't want to do anything that would hurt the church. I only want you to do, God, what benefits the church. See, it's we. Not I. We're in this together. Because we all need a bunch of mercy. Watch this clip from Coach Carter. Bring it in, guys. Go, hustle up. Yo, bring it in, y'all. All right, that's it for today. We have a game tomorrow, so get some rest tonight. And remember... Ties and jackets tomorrow. Clay. Mr. Cruz. I'm impressed with what you've done. But you came up short. You owe me 80 suicides and 500 push-ups. Please leave my gym. Thanks, Clyde. Gentlemen, see you tomorrow. I'll do push-ups for him. You said we're a team. One person struggles and we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph, right?
I'll do some. I'll run suicides too. I do some too. Fine. Let's keep count. Call me when they're done. What a picture of the church. In the church family, we have responsibility to each other. When one struggles, we all struggle. Because one thing that we have in common is we're all in need of mercy here, without exception. Another thing we have in common is the forgiveness of sins. We have received mercy. Let's be merciful to one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words. May we reflect on them as we go throughout our week. May we come back to these words. For some, it's pass over this and get to the good stuff at the end of this chapter. It's pretty weighted of what you included here to be this prayer. And so help us to meditate, reflect, and to cry out to you, Lord, we need your mercy. And may we extend that mercy to one another, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.